Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. There's been no lack of movement for the U.S. vaping industry over the past several weeks, with some developments showing real progress in the fight to save vaping. Bills that would have banned the sale of flavored nicotine products failed to pass state legislators in both Connecticut and Colorado, which are solid wins for the industry. But the U.S. Food and Drug Administration continues to frustrate the industry at every turn. FDA granted marketing orders for yet more unpopular vaping products produced by Big Tobacco, and in a status report concerning the agency's review of outstanding pre-market tobacco applications covering the most popular brands of vaping products, such as Juul, FDA informed U.S. District Court Judge Paul Grimm that it needs another year to finalize its decisions, making it nearly three years from the close of PMTA applications for FDA to get the job done. Keep in mind, FDA quickly issued marketing denial orders for well over 90% of the U.S. vaping industry within the first year. What could be taking FDA so long? Perhaps it's implementing its new power to regulate synthetic nicotine as a tobacco product. Joining us today to discuss these developments and efforts to work with FDA on an accommodation over synthetic nicotine is Tony Abood, Executive Director of the Vapor Technology Association. Tony, thanks for coming back on the show. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate you having me on. Last time we had you on the show, we actually discussed the good news regarding the demise of the Biden federal vape tax. However, it was not long after that federal legislators turned their sights onto synthetic nicotine and they won that fight. Fill our audience in on why synthetic nicotine is important to the industry and what happened to put it under FDA's purview. Well, it started obviously with some frustration in the marketplace uh, by companies who were trying to work through the regulatory process. But synthetic nicotine really started a long time ago. It's been a product that is being developed uh, over the course of eight years or more. Uh, and that is th through the development of a scientific manner and process through which nicotine itself as a molecule, as a chemical, could be manufactured in a laboratory facility. Um, and there are certain benefits to having that done. Uh, that uh, are create a nicotine that is superior in quality or arguably cleaner and arguably purer than existing sources of nicotine. And I think one of the things that has been missed in this discussion is just what has gone into the process by those companies that have had the foresight long before the deeming regulation uh, was implemented to start to look for a cleaner and better alternative. And so when the bill ultimately uh, came up and was passed basically in the course of a very short period of time as part of the uh, omnibus funding bill, which of course dealt with Ukraine funding, which obviously had a major uh, push behind it. Um, there was little that could be done by the industry. This was truly a kind of uh, uh, just closed view uh, implementation of language with no opportunity, certainly wasn't, there weren't any hearings or any sort of opportunity for public comment or dialogue on the issue. And so it seemed to us that the first thing that we had to do was make sure that the regulators had a clear picture of what synthetic nicotine has to offer and why these pro this product category needs to be examined and fully examined 
through the regulatory process rather than just simply dispensed with as just another form of nicotine or another form of tobacco product. And so that was kind of at the core of what we wanted to do and, and what we've been trying to do with the agency. And it's not easy, but I think that the, the important thing is that uh, we've engaged in that dialogue and we've started to provide a basis uh, and a, a different level of understanding, both on the scientific level and on the policy level for, for why companies that have filed PMTAs should be worked with in this, in this regard and why the agency should engage with these applications and these applicants. Now, I think it's important to explain that a little bit uh, more because we, people have been hearing about the PMTA process now for years, but this is a new process specifically for synthetic nicotine, correct? Yeah, that's correct. So the two are are are, are not congruous in the sense that they're they're not all everything that we're hearing about the current PMTA and the litigation that involves the current uh, PMTA process does not involve synthetic nicotine. Basically, synthetic nicotine uh, was legislation was first patched, passed on March fifteenth. It became formally regulated as a tobacco product uh, in on April fourteenth. And then by May 14th, companies had to have filed their PMTA applications. They were only given 60 days, mind you, to get these applications in, um, which is of course obviously problematic since the FDA requires a minimum of six months of scientific data. But it's it's kind of one of the oddities of this bill. Congress invited companies to to bring new products to market by April 14th and then filed their PMTAs to keep them on the market by May 14th. So um, they actually asked companies to go ahead and bring products to the market and many of them did. Uh, and, and many of them have tried to do everything they could to comply with the requirements of the PMTA, PMTA given the obvious limitations. And FDA is fully aware of what those limitations are. And frankly, the, what Congress did is put both the agency and the industry in in a in a conundrum, right? And uh, and 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 so now the question is, how will this process play itself out? Now, so as you said, maybe expand on that a little bit. So there definitely have been some companies that have applied for PMTAs for their synthetic nicotine products. Yes, we don't know the number yet. Obviously, FDA hasn't uh, revealed any information yet. We hope and we expect <clears throat> that they will publish a list like they did the first time around um, uh, with the PMTA list that uh, included all those applicants that had filed. Um, but I think that um, this process is, is, is going to play itself out. And the, whole, and the question is really, um, are they going to try to do something different than what they did before? Clearly, the PMTA with respect to tobacco drive nicotine applications has, has just gone off the rails, right? The, the process itself. The manner in which flavored products were removed from the market, uh, which has generated over 50 uh, appeals in, in federal appellate court, has created a, a really untenable situation for the agency where it's going to be confronted with various decisions, competing decisions and rulings in multiple circuits. Uh, and then that too is going to confound their process for moving forward. You know, think, think through this a little bit forward. When certain circuits come down with a ruling in favor of the company's position and certain circuits come down with a ruling in the favor of the FDA's position, then what's FDA going to do, right? They can't simply try to regulate 
the marketplace circuit by circuit, um, that, that becomes an untenable model. So um, whether the issue gets resolved by the Supreme, Supreme Court is another, is another open question. But even if it were not, even if the Supreme Court did not grant cert, then the question is FDA is going to probably have to think really hard about what they're going to do next. Um, so unfortunately, I think for everybody, this is going to lead to a continuation of uncertainty in the marketplace an elongated period of time in which we don't have any sort of clarity in the marketplace. And I know there is enormous frustration with the fact that they still have not ruled on some of the products that they said were of the greatest interest to the agency in terms of public health. Uh, and they said that again in their filing this, this, this past week. But to say that they're still not going to be able to finish this process until June of 2023 uh, suggests that <clears throat> the process itself is arduous. So just imagine if any set, if not all of the applications which are being litigated, get thrown back into FDA, just how long that process will ultimately take. Now, with the synthetic nicotine and this new PMTA process with pretty incredible maybe unreasonable deadlines, I think is fair to say. Um, this was a Hail Mary, wasn't it, for some companies uh, to implement the use of synthetic nicotine in order to pull itself maybe out of the regulatory process? Because if it's not made from tobacco, then that means the vaping product isn't a tobacco product. And then that might you know, help kind of skirt around uh, the deeming regulation. I mean, is this gonna be a nail in the coffin for the industry? Well, look, the industry has to be ultimately a regulated industry, right? So the fact of the matter and, and the problems that we've had is that is that the agency itself hasn't moved aggressively enough in the marketplace to to address those companies that have been attempting to comply with the regulation, have in fact complied with the regulation. Uh, and so the result of what they uh, what they did with respect to removing all of the flavors, um, from the marketplace did create a, an incredible amount of concern and uncertainty and, and in some cases uh, just outright uh, fear and panic, right? But again, this product cannot be viewed only in that, in that way in, or in that vein. Synthetic nicotine has been being developed and it actually was already introduced into the market before this last series of events. And, um, and it is truly an innovation in nicotine. And what's really interesting, Brent, is if you think about the fact that for the last six years that um, we've been just talking about the importance of innovation in the delivery vehicle, right? Vaping products as a delivery vehicle provide to the consumer a much safer form of using nicotine. This is the first innovation in the nicotine itself, the actual active ingredient in which um, the, 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 which is the only reason people are using the product. So when you have a cleaner, purer version, you arguably have a better product and a product that continues to push the issues of, 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 of risk down and safety up. And those are the kinds of issues that the FDA has to take seriously because at the end of the day, if they are not going to be trying to move products into the market that are innovative, then I think we are really going to be behind the eight ball as far as getting people off of combustible cigarettes. So now VTA, you've had what, two sets of meetings now with FDA specifically on synthetic nicotine. And in one case, you brought some experts, some scientists with you. Explain what you're doing there and might preface it with my question. Are you trying to soften 
FDA's kind of position when it comes to synthetic nicotine? Well, I think to I think that you have to presume that they have a position to think that you're softening it. So that's not the way that uh, I, I'm I'm viewing this. I think that the first thing that you have to do is educate, right? I think up until this point, very little was said publicly or discussed publicly about synthetic nicotine other than the negative narrative that you heard in the media. Uh, and that it is only a form of circumvention, right? But that argument is moot now because it's all regulated. So no one can be critical of companies that are using products with synthetic nicotine if they filed a PMTA last Saturday as they were required to do, because there is no argument about circumvention anymore. As it relates to the agency, it is it was extremely important to us that they understood not only the scientific background of the, the product itself, how it was manufactured, but also um, um, why. And in some cases, it was uh, companies were, were, were working on this innovation and bringing it to market. There are, and then also framing out important public policy issues as they may relate to either consumers, to the agency itself, to the environment, all of the things that differentiate this product because part of what the, the central component of uh, and driving message of our industry is that we have to move away from combustibles and tobacco. So in this context, this is kind of one of the most definitive breaks with tobacco. When you can manufacture a nicotine that is perfectly replicable in a laboratory facility environment, that is perfectly consistent from batch to batch, that is entirely traceable at the batch level, some, uh, you know, traceability that, is does not exist uh, in, in existing products because of the way existing products uh, with tobacco-derived nicotine are manufactured. So these are ideas and thoughts and concepts that had to be addressed and had to be raised. And so it's really painting a big picture and a broad picture for the agency so that they can understand that there is more here than what has been said publicly. And then take that into account in terms of determining how, how they want to approach this new set of regulations that Congress has foisted upon them. Tony, let's talk now about uh, the FDA granting marketing orders for big tobacco products. Is this disheartening? You know, I understand people who say it's disheartening. I don't think it's disheartening. Uh, the FDA has finally, after all these years of listening to opponents of this industry and opponents of this product and opponents of harm reduction repeatedly and consistently declare that vaping products are not safe, they're not appropriate, they don't help people quit. Um, the FDA has said, well, actually that's not true, at least in these specific cases. And granted, they're making these decisions on a case-by-case -case basis, right? But the fact of the matter is, is that the FDA has said these products, which we have approved, are appropriate for the protection of public health. And every time they say that, for every product that they approve, they are making a statement that, that takes the air out of the sales of the, the obvious anti-vaping opponents who have for years denigrated the entire segment and the entire sector. Um, and it's going to be harder and harder and harder for them to make their case the more of these approvals that come through. So the challenge, of course, is that they don't end up with a marketplace that looks like the set of approved products right now, because everybody understands that that is not going to be a viable marketplace, certainly not for consumers who have been relying upon vaping products and in particular flavored vaping products to 
stay quit and to get quit. And I think that we have to be a continually mindful of that fact. And the agency has to know that that is a, that is a, is a large concern. And hopefully these court cases will ultimately force a reconsideration of what the agency has done. And as they move towards having more and more products approved, perhaps we get to the we get to the point where we have additional products approved, including menthol and including um, uh, other flavored products. And that's really the you know the big issue here. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people out there you know don't care much if they approve you know thousands and thousands of products if they're if they're old or not very popular, but most importantly, if they're only tobacco flavored, then that's a big issue. Of course, it's an issue. Uh, you know. If you want to attract people away from cigarettes, you have to you have to give them alternatives, right? So it's 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 clear that at least in the applications um, that have been approved, the FDA has made a, a determination that based upon what has been submitted, that that particular product has been helpful to smokers in in moving away from cigarettes, and they clearly have already made the determination that a tobacco flavor. Is, is not at all enticing to youth. So therefore their, their balancing test comes down in favor of granting that, that particular application. But on balance, if at the end of the day, we're only left with a handful of tobacco flavored products uh, and that the number of those products involve only a certain type of devices, then it's going to be very difficult to, to it seems to me, to continue to attract smokers in the way that that at least anecdotally and what's been demonstrated empirically to date, we have had success in doing so in this industry. And that's the real fear, right? The real fear is that so much of the industry is, is, is um, constrained. We're left with basically uh, what I would call a Pleasantville version of, of e-cigarettes uh, and vaping products on the market. And, and then people are left in the dark and left to basically fend for themselves. And I'm particularly concerned, and the agency, frankly, should be particularly concerned about what happens and what people, consumers choose to do when they don't have the options that they have become accustomed to, that, that, that have been effective for them, and that for them are working. Now, that is very true. I mean, obviously, black market concerns, we talk about that all the time on the show. Mm -hmm. Tony, you were just at the e-cigarette summit and FDA actually was there. Fill us in on what you what you heard, what was talked about at the summit, and then let's have a chit chat about this slide that you shared with me. Well, what was interesting is that um, every year at the e-cigarette summit, which if people don't know what it is, it, it is um, a, a, uh, a meeting that is a single day in Washington, D.C., and they also do the same thing in London each year. And they assemble um, all the leading scientists that are working on e-cigarette issues, vaping issues, smoking issues, and they present that science. And it is, um, and, and there is a very important policy discussion that occurs each and every year. And I can't tell you how important I think this meeting is because what we have seen over the years is as the science has developed, the scientists, the researchers, the academic from major institutions uh, and with incredible pedigrees uh, have, are clearly now speaking in a much more unified fashion in terms of 
how important getting our policies around e-cigarettes are and how important it is to get them right. And there seems to be a constant theme coming out, which is that we have enough science now to know that we should be treating this product differently in this country than the way we are treating it. We have enough science now to know that the regulatory structure that is being superimposed over this product is insufficient to meet the needs of public health. And that is kind of one of the more interesting uh, concerns that is being raised because if the regulatory process leads to the kind of market that we were just talking about, there are some serious concerns as to whether the true benefits of these products are going to be realized. But without question, there seems to be a, a lot of unanimity on the point that e-cigarettes can and be can help people quit and that what we need to be doing is looking for unique and different policies to help ensure that those that they are available and that they are available in a wide variety uh, in particular, in some cases of flavors, some would, would talk about. Now, the, all, they also focused on the fact that a lot of the media, the way the media covers, interestingly enough, science is, is oftentimes misleading. And, uh, and, and there is, I think, some, some, some frustration about that because the, 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 the scientists that are working on this issue, all they're asking for is a fair, an honest conversation on the issues because what we've seen in the past in the past few years is scientists that say anything positive about e-cigarettes in any way get assailed or get attacked in uh in their own uh circles and in their own publications um and yet so so there is frustration there and that's why this summit provides an opportunity to have that kind of discussion and and it, and it was a very balanced discussion. And I think at this juncture, that's extremely important because the, there has been so much imbalance in the discussion around this product segment, particularly from the scientific community. And that's driven a lot by the interest groups, right? They capitalize on that science and, and really try to uh, um, use it for, for their own ends and take it to ends that do not, that are not supported by the actual studies. So certainly then what I'm getting out of that is that um, this trend that we've noticed and RegWatch has reported on over the last year and so is that there has been a movement within side public health of those that are predisposed to be, you know, pro-harm reduction, to use, you know, a, a pretty blatant term, but they've actually been making some progress in terms of getting that message out there um, with inside their own scientific community. Yeah, and I think that, that, you know, again, this is a forum, the ESIG Summit is a forum in which they can do that. Um, and I think that it, that just the fact that that forum is provided is, is outstanding. And the good news is that there were also some reporters that attended. And so, again, you hope that those reporters take out those same salient points. Um, it's hard to tell, obviously. Uh, anybody can look at a, at a study or a slide and take from it what they want. But when you see a balanced discussion and you hear scientists talking about e-cigarettes in, in a positive way, in a hopeful way, in a, in a way that suggests, hey, we may not have perfect science, but frankly, we don't need perfect science right now to know that where we're going in the United States, at least, 
is is not in necessarily in the right direction. And those warnings, I think, have to be heeded by members of Congress. They have to be heeded by state legislatures. And um, and so that's why these studies, this discussion is so important. Now, FDA just uh, presented its report to the U.S. District Court, uh, Judge Paul Grimm, which was a part of that whole um, issue. It was the lawsuit that actually pushed FDA along uh, to uh, bring its PMTA applications to a close early. And that was, I believe, uh, the um, Pediatric Association? Yeah, the American Academy of Pediatrics. Yeah, that had brought that suit. And then, of course, Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids and everybody else kind of joined on. So um, tell us about the FDA's uh, position, I guess, in terms of um, how well they think they've done with the PMTA process. And let's actually talk a bit about this slide because I think it's very, uh, you know, it's very interesting to see how many products were actually had applications in and how few um, were actually have been approved. Yeah, I think I think uh, the FDA is working with significant constraints, or at least they will say that they're working with significant constraints. And those constraints are the the statute, the, the regulation that they created. Um, and uh, and then the constraints of, I guess, resources um, for being able to handle these uh, th- these types of applications. Um, with that said, they were they believe that they have managed this well because you know they they in many of their press releases they'll say that you know they have already addressed ninety nine percent of all of the outstanding applications. Okay. But of course, as we know from what happened and from the figures on this particular slide, some of those were summarily addressed with the with the on mass uh, denials and market denial orders for uh, uh, flavored vaping products, and that's uh, so it, that's obviously something that is. Um, I, I mean, they're stats, right? because we know they didn't review the applications. They said they did not review the applications. So this is why I was saying earlier that if the courts do start to reverse or uh, the decisions that the FDA made and force FDA to take these under advisement, they're going to have, oh, I mean, a massive set of applications that they are then going to have to figure out how they are going to process. So really what FDA has said is that of the applications you can see in that phase two filing section it was really where they where they identified uh, the number that they actually filed versus the ones that they refused to file and um, and ultimately issuing MDOs for over 1.2 million products and I think that when we're when we're thinking about that number and looking at the fact that they have approved only 21 out of what eight million they said that they that they received, I mean, it, it the numbers speak for themselves in terms of how well they are doing in terms of the process. Um, what you want to, I mean, I'm sure people will have a lot of blame to spread around, um, and uh, you know everybody has theories on what happened and why, uh, but at the end of the day, these kinds of numbers are you know, still going to leave us all in a situation where. We're not going to have a clearly articulated and a regulated market for quite some time. And I frankly don't think that helps anybody. So the longer it takes, I mean, 
how could that benefit the industry? Well, I mean, it benefits the industry to the extent that you're one of the products that has received an MDO, but it was either rescinded or you appealed it and obtained a, a, a stay order. Um, and um, or, or those products that were are, are still under review, right? So, I mean, the, as long as the FDA is going to allow you to continue, those companies to continue to sell their products, yeah, sure, it benefits them. The longer it takes the FDA, that's sure, absolutely. It's a benefit to, to, to be on the market. Juul is still on the market because the FDA has used its enforcement discretion, allowed them to remain on the market, even though the FDA has declared Juul and every other product as illegal because they have not received a marketing granted order. So um, that the fact that that thinking exists, uh, if, that's the, if that's the continued process that the FDA will, will use, then that will be a benefit to those companies. What's not a benefit is the fact that we don't have FDA enforcing against any products on the market that they have either rejected or more importantly, any products that haven't even filed an application to remain on the market. So all of the companies that took the time and the effort, rolled up their sleeves, worked hard, sunk their money in, in, into the process, and, 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 and then tried to comply um, and did so in good faith, those companies are still, even if they're being held in abeyance or having a, a stay on, uh, on enforcement, uh, are still in the market benefiting. But at the same time, the companies that have never filed an application, that have never registered with the FDA, have flooded the marketplace. And so the fact that the FDA isn't taking care of the other side of the equation means that it's, it's it basically it's a, it, it's a double whammy for the companies that are trying to comply. So we have an agency that needs to do two things at the same time. They need to enforce the marketplace and, and make sure that those companies that have filed their applications, that they get through and have those applications reviewed. Now, of course, the lawsuits are going to dictate what happens with a very large set of them, but the FDA has to be acting and moving forward, both in terms of the review and in terms of enforcement. Otherwise, again, we have a completely unregulated mess of a marketplace. Consumers don't know if they're going to have availability of same products month to month. Retailers aren't sure you know, what products they should be stocking month to month. And, and then that all unfortunately creates a lot of disinterest in terms of what the FDA is doing and also distrust or mistrust of what the FDA is doing. And that's never a good thing. And what we don't want to have is a situation where, particularly with respect to synthetic nicotine, where the FDA takes summary action again and removes a whole host of products from the market. Because what is true is that companies will always look to fill the void. Industry is always ahead of regulation. That's that's a fact of life. And it and it, it's not just in this industry, it's in, in virtually every industry. So when regulation catches up, that's one thing. But in this case, when it's like the dog catching the car. And and at the end of the day, um, if, 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 if the FDA doesn't actually implement the regulations and doesn't actually enforce them to create an ordered market that makes sense and that is consistent with the policy and public health, then companies will move on to the next phase. 
So the fact that Congress moved and passed a law to regulate synthetic nicotine was an interesting move and really one that was only create necessary because they set up the law in such a a bizarre way to begin with. No other country distinguishes between nicotine derived by tobacco and nicotine derived um, synthetically. Nicotine is nicotine. Nicotine is a chemical, and it is and 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 when you when you can manufacture it in, in a manner that's chemically identical to a plant-based nicotine, but cleaner, then you you really are talking about the same entity. And then the question becomes: in the case of synthetic nicotine, as I was talking about earlier. What are the additional benefits that you get when using a synthetic process? Um, but at this at this stage, if we don't have the agency actually doing its job, then the marketplace becomes more unruly, and we don't get to, uh, I, I believe, a set of products that can actually be relied upon by consumers going forward. So let's just jump into uh, what is some good news, which was the flavor bans getting stopped in uh, Connecticut and Colorado. I mean, how yeah. how important is that? And it, could it be a determination, you know, a deter determinant for other battles uh, in the states? Yeah, I mean, those those were were huge victories. I mean, the, the folks that that worked on those uh, um, campaigns uh, in Colorado and Connecticut. Um, I mean, sh should be extremely ecstatic and very proud of, of what they've done. I think that the important part is that, you know, we see the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids throwing endless resources at this particular issue. And at the same time, being absolutely unwilling to accept any sort of negotiated resolution or any sort of bill that um, that doesn't give them everything that they want. And I think we know what happens to people and to companies and to ent entities that take those extreme positions. They end up losing many times and then they end up losing credibility. And um, these are, I can tell you just from the experience that I've had <laughs> in, in, in lobbying, there isn't a bill that isn't at some point negotiable where the sponsors don't finally look at both sides and say, why can't we work this out, right? There's always something that can be done. Uh, and in this case, um, we, we, have, we, we have opponents that are um, so extreme in their positions that they cannot even think to support rational common sense alternatives that give them 95% of what they want. And I think that that's going to ultimately hurt their case going forward. I, I, I read in the paper that one of the uh, uh, lobbyists, I believe it was for a uh, campaign for tobacco free quits, said something to the effect of, we're not accustomed to losing, right? And so, I mean, and, and it's not just about winning and losing. It really should be about kind of what is the right answer here? Because the fact of the matter is, is that what should be their concern is is really not become is not their concern. Their only concern is winning on their own terms uh, and in their own agenda. And the same thing seems to be applying to Hawaii, where um, again they pulled support for the flavor ban bill. There, it passed anyway. It begs the question of, I mean, if nobody was supporting the bill, right? Then why did it pass? But Hawaii is obviously a very interesting state. Well, there's many challenges still still to come uh, for the industry, but hopefully everything could work out. <laughs>
Well, look, I think I've said this before, either on the show or, or elsewhere. Um, this is a it, this is a long call, and it's hard for companies that have invested so much of their lifeblood and their time and their energy and their money. Uh, it's 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 so hard when you hear a, a, a vape shop owner like uh, uh, Mark Sliss, who spoke at ESIG Summit, was incredibly passionate in in his in his presentation. Uh, but when you hear him speak about the people that he has helped, right? And how this product has not only changed his life, but the lives of so many of those that he is working with. And then when you hear that message echoed by some of the scientists at this meeting who say that we need to be thinking about policies where what happens in a vape shop is part of the regimen that we have in terms of helping people get away from smoking cigarettes. In other words, at least one of the scientists was talking about the fact that the consultation that a consumer gets when they go into a vape shop is extremely important. The fact that they're speaking about things of this nature suggests that there is a much better policy approach to how this issue should be addressed. And um, I think that there is hope for those reasons. We have people who are so passionate and so dedicated. And then we have, I believe, evolving science on the issue. I believe we have an agency that is in, in significant um, discord right now in terms of how they are going to manage themselves out of this current situation, which one can argue they have created for themselves. But all of that requires a process. All of that process takes time. And with the passage of that time, we have continuing improvement of the science. We have continuing improvement, perhaps, of, of the ability to communicate and, and share ideas and strengthen uh, suggestions with, with different uh, regulators. And then who knows what happens as things change politically. So. I think there is hope on a lot of different levels. I'm eternally an optimist, um, and I think that maybe uh, um, that uh, you, you know that from our prior conversations, but um, we just have to keep doing the work. We have to keep uh, fighting every day and, um, and, and, and stay on message. It's the combustible cigarette and it's the adult smoker that has to be recognized. And that theme was so clearly articulated at the eSig Summit it's the louder that message gets, the harder and the harder it's going to be for regulators to continue down the path that they are continuing to, that they have been going down.